and Answers begins right now. There is a growing disdain for masculinity in the culture today. Dr. Nancy Piercy states that Darwinism played a big role in corrupting our view of masculinity and that as American society grows more secular, this will contribute to a growing negative script for masculinity. How can we restore the truth on manhood and womanhood? You are tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with our host, Pat Zucharan. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In our broadcast today, Pat concludes his interview with best-selling author, Dr. Nancy Piercy on her book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, and discusses how we can restore biblical manhood in our churches and our culture. Let's conclude this fascinating interview. Here's our host, Pat. I think in all your books is that uh, disconnect that Christians have, that public and private split or um, fact and faith, uh, that kind of disconnect that we have here. And how does that come into play uh, here when we're talking about manhood and womanhood? Yeah, so after the Industrial Revolution, um, uh, so they, they grew, grew up a large public square, public sphere of factories and offices and financial institutions and universities, banks, and and of course the government. And people began to say that this public sphere should be run by scientific principles, by which they meant value-free. Uh, in other words, don't bring your private values into the public arena, which is what we still hear today. Mm-hmm. Well, where were values going to be cultivated then? People didn't want to just give up values like love and altruism and kindness and goodness and um, religious devotion. Well, so those were all relegated to the private sphere of the church and home. Well, at that time, of course, who was at home? Women were at home. And so for the first time in human history, hmm. women were said to be morally superior to men. People began to say, well, women are in charge of values because women are more sensitive in the moral and spiritual realm. That had never been said before. All hmm. the way back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, people had thought that men were morally superior, that the insight into right hmm. and wrong is a rational insight, hmm. and men were thought to be more rational. Therefore, men were thought to be more virtuous. Hmm. In fact, the word virtuous comes from the Latin word for man, yeah. V-I-R, man, like in the word virile. <laughs> so virtue had overtones of manly strength and honor. So this was completely new, that in the 19th century, women began to be seen as morally superior. And so what happened is, is a, a huge split then between the public arena, which was amoral and secular and supposedly scientific, and men were working in that arena all day. And then the home was supposed to be the realm where you cultivated morality and spirituality, and men were supposed to come home at night and be reformed and refined and renewed by their morally superior wives. So the private-public split, which sociologists often talk about, you know, how the, the modern age is characterized by this huge public public sphere, which you know was not the case before. Um, you know, when, when economic activity was carried on in the home, you didn't have a huge split. But now the public-private sphere also becomes a split between masculine and feminine. And, and so this is part of what we're up against today as well, is that 
It's still I, from when from when I talk to young people, they tell me that definitely they feel that the double standard is still there. Like in a dating relationship, for example, it's the woman's job to hold the line on their sexual involvement or non-involvement. Uh, it's the woman who's supposed to be um, hold. And even after marriage, I was I was on an inter interviewed by a young couple who run a, a podcast, and so I asked them. You know, and they said, oh, yeah, in, in the Christian world that, that they experience as young people, you know, in their 20s, they said the, the message is that men are much more prone to sin and vice, to pornography and adultery and having affairs, and that it's a wife who has to sort of keep the husband in check. She has to make sure she's meeting all, all her needs because if she, all his needs, did I say that wrong? That she's meeting all his needs because it'll be her fault. If he does porn or whatever that mm. this they they're from their young people's perspective that double standard is still very much in the christian world and i i think it's still causing a lot of tension therefore between the sexes we're still kind of letting men off the hook morally and and holding women responsible for that's mm. behavior oh yeah you know on a side note i use that public private split uh, all the time. I just spoke at a uh, youth retreat there in the San Bernardino National Forest, about 200 youth. And we talked about the Christian worldview and the public-private split. And all the time you see kind of the light bulb go off. And at the Q&A time, not only the youth, but youth staff and the pastors were saying, well, how does Christianity apply to psychology? How does Christianity apply to economics? How does Christianity apply to my view of the environment. You know, they had never made that connection before. So it's a great uh, analysis or tool I use all the time, the public-private split, fact, faith, you know. Uh, I, if you haven't, if you guys haven't read Total Truth, you guys got to read it. You know, that's a book you ought to read maybe before you read the other Nancy Piercy books. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right, you're right, because that's where I deal with that. And, and here I just show that here's just one more place where that private-public split applies. And historically, it had a huge impact on the male-female relationship. So there it is again. Yeah. Well, let's start moving to the church now. You know, how has the culture's attack on masculinity, you know, affected the church? Yes, it was very easy to find examples, as you can imagine, of people saying that um, conservative churches lead to abuse, um, that any sort of headship theory leads to men who are overbearing, tyrannical patriarchs. I'll give you just one quote. This is from the co-founder of the Church Too movement, which started after the Me Too movement. And she said uh, that conservative Protestant male headship theology mm. feeds the rape culture that we see permeating Christianity today. Huh. So there was there were psychologists and sociologists who said, well, wait a minute, where's your evidence? You're making these charges but where's your evidence? And so they went out and did the studies. And what they found was actually just the opposite. They found that Christian evangelical men who are actually practicing their faith, who go to church regularly, who believe it, who are trying to live it out, test out as the most loving husbands and the most engaged fathers of any group in America. Mm -hmm. um, they... <laughs> 
the first pushback I get, of course, is that, oh, sure, of course, the wives said they were happy, their husband's sitting right next to them. <laughs> but no, no, they interviewed the wives separately. And, and these are drawing on large databases that are secular. These were not, not all of them. I did, I, I have about a dozen different studies, but the largest ones drew on the databases that are secular and, you know, that do, uh, look at thousands and even tens of thousands of, of, of people. So um, they, they're not, they're not um, biased in their questions. And so what these studies do find that the wives themselves report the highest level of happiness with their husband's expressions of love and affection. Evangelical fathers spend the most time with their children and both in shared activities like sports and church youth group and in discipline like setting limits on screen time or enforcing bedtime. Evangelical couples have the lowest rate of divorce. And then the, the real surprise, they have the lowest level of domestic violence of any group in America. So it just shatters all the negative stereotypes. It debunks all of the media messages that we hear about Christian men. And when I read it, none of this is out in the public arena yet. I had to go digging in the academic literature, academic journals, to find this material. And that was the final reason I decided to write the book, actually, as I said, we've got to give this, we have to get this information out there. This is just so interesting and we don't know it. And our, you know, our really good godly Christian men are feeling beaten down like every other man. And they need to know that this, 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 the studies show, and it's not just, you know, a pastor giving a pep talk. This mm -hmm. is rigorous scientific data. This is empirical testing. And so we should be bringing this confidently out into the public arena as evidence-based findings from social science. Yeah, you know, and that that's a really important point that you bring out. I was speaking uh, in California at, at a denominational conference. And uh, one of the things I mentioned is that I said, wherever Christianity has gone in the world, it has exalted the status of women. And everybody, all the pastors, all their heads were shaking at me like that. And when it came to Q&A time, first question came up, it says, Christianity has been an oppressive uh, religion towards women. And these are pastors, you know, and I'm just sitting there, mm. and he said, look at these passages, you know, uh, wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. I do not allow women to exercise authority over a man tremendously oppressive to it this has been the most oppressive religion towards women you know i was just stunned i was uh uh you know i gave my answer but uh i was just stunned uh how would you have answered something like that yes you know like i said to keep the book manageable i focus mostly on america but i couldn't resist including a few studies from around the globe yeah and uh, i have three of them i'll give you all three so the first one was done in colombia and it was by a, an anthropologist who said she just assumed that evangelicalism would lead to, you know, overbearing patriarchs, you know, top-down control and so on. And so she was stunned when she found out that uh, that's not the case, that evangelical fathers actually became the most warm, loving, caring fathers. Here's how she puts it. Machismo culture in Latin America yeah. gives men, tells men, you know, they should be not hanging around the family they should be out in public they should be right. hanging out with other men you know mm -hmm. drinking and gambling and fighting and visiting prostitutes and that that's what makes you a real man 
And she says, when a man becomes an evangelical, he takes all that money and brings it home to his family. The whole family experiences an increase in their living standard. Mm. And so she says, you could consider evangelical Christianity a women's movement because it has done mm -hmm. so much to increase the status of women in Latin America. And then um, a, a larger study, the much larger study was done by a sociologist at the University of London. And she looked at you know, across several continents, Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And she found the same thing. She too says that, uh, and she talks about the role of the church backing up women, which I thought was interesting. She said, uh, the church helps men put the needs of the household above their own pleasure. And she says that, um, the let's I, I got the quote in front of me um that the, the church that the church helps women to put reins on wayward husbands mm. is the way she puts it and and she also says if if there's anything that has the the right to be called a women's movement it should be evangelicalism she says it, it's done much more for women than than secular development country a uh, secular development um organizations or Western feminism, she says. Uh, ironically, uh, a religion that we think of as quote unquote backward and unsophisticated, yeah. she said, in fact, has done much more for women. And the third sort of study is uh, by a New York Times columnist. So clearly not a Christian. <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't say that maybe, but uh, it would be pretty rare for a Christian to reach high level in the New York Times, mm -hmm. um, but, he, but he isn't. And he wrote a best-selling book. So some of you may have read it. It's called Half the Sky. Hmm. And he too is very honest about, you know what, it's the Christian ministries, the Christian missions that do so much more for women than any other organization. Here's how he puts it. He says, the church applies community pressure to discourage drinking and adultery practices that have caused tremendous hardship to women. So all three of these studies show that it's not just one, you know, one culture that's experienced this, but that everywhere evangelical Christianity goes, it brings husbands back into connection with their families, cements their connection, their commitment to their families, and the whole family experiences a higher quality of living. And in particular, yes, the question we started with, the status, it raises the status of women. Yeah, that's, that's well said. I'm going to take this video clip of you and your answer and play it. Next time I get asked that question, I get it asked a lot. I don't answer it as well as you just did. So I'm going to play this video clip. I'm going to say, I'm going to have Nancy answer this question. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> right. Well, Nancy, you know, we talked a lot about, yeah, the problem, but what are ways that men and women, as you state, can, how can they rediscover their identity and, and find, how can we restore the positive identity of biblical manhood and womanhood well we need to have uh, one caveat here um and explain why christians sometimes have a negative reputation the first pushback i always get is but haven't we heard that mm. christians divorce at the same rate as the rest of the culture yeah in fact in my research i found that that is one of the most widely quoted statistics by christian leaders and so the researchers went back to the data and they divided out the Christians who are truly committed and attend church regularly and take the responsibility to be spiritual leaders in their families from nominal Christians. Now, mm. my students don't even know what nominal means, so I have to explain. 
it means in name only because n-o-m is latin for name so these are men who in a survey like this might check the baptist box for example but who attend church rarely if at all and these men test out shockingly different they fit all the toxic stereotypes their wives report the lowest level of happiness they are the least involved with their children Hmm. They have the highest rate of divorce, higher than secular men, hmm. and they have the highest rate of domestic abuse and violence, higher than secular men. Hmm. So this is hmm. why the numbers get so skewed. If you just take an overall study of evangelicals, you're going to have men who are better than secular men and men who are worse than secular men. And so, of course, the numbers are going to be skewed and misleading. And so this is what we're up against, that many people are aware of they've run into these nominal men in their life especially the cultures that have a you know a long history of christianity like america does we have a lot of cultural christians in other words people who say they're christians because of their family and their cultural background but who do not have a strong personal commitment or even understanding of what christianity really teaches so these men will take words like headship and submission mm-hmm. but they will infuse those words with meanings from the secular world right there's a secular script out there that we talked about like under when we talked about darwinism so they take that secular script and interpret a word like headship not through a biblical meaning but through meanings of entitlement dominance control and so on and so people sometimes say but why would they turn out to be even worse than secular men if they're infusing these words with secular meaning well apparently it's because by putting a Christian veneer over it, they feel like they're getting religious justification mm-hmm. for acting that way. Mm-hmm. You know, like the secular guy doesn't feel that, but the Christian, the guy with a Christian label acts like the secular person, but feels like he has religious permission or justification for that. And so he ends up actually testing out worse than mm-hmm. secular men. So this is what we're up against, say, in the church, for example, is how do we bring the good news of the fact that really committed Christian men are doing far better than anyone realizes. Mm. Encourage them. Tell them to keep doing this. (laughs) What you're doing is working. But following God's word actually has good outcomes. But how can we reach out? I I think we have a responsibility to reach out to the men who are identifying as evangelical, but who in fact are living even worse than secular men. You know, they have some tenuous connection to the church. So how can we have discipleship programs to reach out to them in an effective way? So that, you know, they, uh, like I said, they, they're in a sense ruining the reputation of mm. all evangelicals yeah. uh, by their behavior. Yes. Well, man, it just seems like it's only been 15 minutes, but we've had Nancy almost, almost uh, over 50 minutes here. So Nancy, you know, as we close here, what advice would you give to the church, especially to the pastors and church leaders out there in restoring biblical manhood and womanhood and addressing this whole issue of toxic masculinity? Well, one subject we didn't hit was fatherhood, and that is the long-term solution. The long-term strategy is raising the next generation of boys with loving, loving biblical fathers or father substitutes. In other words, I quote one psychiatrist who said, we're not going to have a better class of men until we have a better class of fathers Hmm. who are raising the next generation of men. And this too, by the way, goes back to the Industrial Revolution. Before that, when you had the family farm, the family industry, men were working with their sons day in and day out training them in the adult skills that they needed. 
when they were taken out of the home to work in factories and offices, boys had a lot of unsupervised time. And, and that's where the, by the way, the, you know, the phrase boys will be boys as if yeah. boys are just naturally misbehaving. Nobody said that before. Remember, huh? boys with huh. males were thought to be morally superior. Nobody thought that boys were especially misbehaving. No, they were men in the making. So they were, they had strong moral character. Huh. It was when fathers were taken out of the home and boys were unsupervised that they became wild. The um, leading psychologist of the day said, never before has the American boy been so wild. Hmm. And it's because he's been half orphaned. That was his word. He's been uh -huh. half orphaned. Father's gone. And the boys are being raised by mothers, female teachers, and female Sunday school teachers. Mm -hmm. And he said, of course, boys. Boys didn't want to follow their mother's rules. To them, that sounded like asking them to be effeminate. Yeah. So that's when boys became wild and rowdy and rambunctious and rule-breaking. And so that fed also into the secular script. You know, to be a real man, you know, is not to give in, not to conform to society's rules, that, that kind of mentality. But also, it was, it was tough because fathers also lost touch with their families. Fatherhood, today we know that in the media, in cartoons, in advertisements, in movies, the, the father is always the butt of the joke. He's the doofus dad, the dimwit dad. Uh -huh. Why? Because when he was taken out of the home, he was no longer intimately involved with his family. He did not know the family dynamics anymore. He did not know his children and their thoughts and their feelings as well. Already in the 19th century, the literature started coming out saying, you know, what role do men really play in the family? They're just not there. One writer says, you know, the, the father, who's supposed to be the prototype of our heavenly father, is mm. not even here except on Sundays. Mm. So this is where the church can step in, I think. I, I think the church really, the most significant place it could step in is fostering the father-son relationship and reaching out to fatherless boys. In America, 4% of children are grow now growing up apart from their natural fathers, who they see rarely, if at all. So it's the highest rate in the world of single parenthood. Did you know that? That's, we lead the world <laughs> in wow. single parenthood. And so there's a great role for the church to step in there because father substitutes can have a huge impact. Studies have shown that coaches, teachers, youth group leaders, even neighbors and uncles and grandfathers can have a huge impact on kids who are growing up without their father. So the long-term solution, I think, churches, we need to make the father-son relationship a top ministry priority and a ministry to fatherless kids. That'll have the greatest impact long-term on helping raise a generation who has a healthy biblical concept of masculinity. Those are wise words. You've been listening to our interview with best-selling author and scholar, Dr. Nancy Piercy. She's the author of several best-selling books. I recommend you uh, get them all. I think I've got most of them. But Nancy, if people want to get in touch with you or uh, read more about the things that you're doing and the things uh, not only uh, toxic war masculinity, but love thy body and other issues and articles you've written. Where can they go to get more information on you and the things you're doing? Well, my publisher has very kindly created a new website for me. Mm. And so go see that. It's nancypiercy.com. And it's P-E-A-R-C-E-Y, nancypiercy.com. 
And so it's, it's fun and colorful and you can browse all my other books and, and see descriptions and endorsements and so on. And there is a contact form. So send me a note. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Nancy. We've been talking with Dr. Nancy Piercy on her recent book here, outstanding book here, The Toxic War on Masculinity. You're going to want to get it. Not only this, but uh, her other books as well. They, they're, I got a whole shelf of her books here. Most of them, I think. So anyway, Nancy, it's been great to have you on our show. Thanks for being with us here on Evidence and Answers. Thanks for having me. It was great. Once again, we've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers. Our goal is to bring you the love of Christ and to equip you in your faith to always be ready to give a response. If you would like to hold an apologetics conference or series of teachings at your facility, contact Pat by calling him in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may email him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Be sure to browse through our listing of topics on our site. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. You will also find articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. An additional location to find Pat's messages is on YouTube. Look up Evidence and Answers and hit the subscribe button. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. Donating is simple. Just log on at evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers is grateful for one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a place to grow in your faith, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log in at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucker.